Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Each of these stories is different. No one better at Bloomberg knows that than Sri Natarajan, who joins us right now. To say he's Bloomberg Wall Street reporter barely describes the king of gossip of Wall Street. Who's next? Is Goldman Sachs going to have a shakeup? Well, Goldman Sachs is one of the recent firms where we've had a CEO shakeup. So you saw that in 2018 when Lloyd Blankfein it's went out. It's forever came over. I need, come on, I need some more fun from these firms. If, is Goldman, seriously, is Goldman Sachs next? If Jamie Dimon's going to take 15 years and James Gorman won the same time, I bet David Solomon doesn't want to leave anytime soon. Shree, the co-president's role. Can we talk about that a little bit more? How on earth does that work? Well, at least at this firm, it is important that the Morgan Stanley of today is extremely different of the Morgan Stanley from 10, 15 years ago. You have a firm that is not a pure play Wall Street investment bank anymore. Its wealth management arm contributes to nearly 50% of its overall revenue. So it kind of makes sense to pick someone like Ted Pick, who has charge of the entire investment bank, and Andy Saperstein, who's really built Morgan Stanley into a wealth management powerhouse, starting from 2010 with the Smith Barney purchase through to last year with the E-Trade buy, which was one of the biggest deals, possibly the biggest bank deal since the financial crisis, that it has become a major center of gravity for the firm. So at Morgan Stanley, you had to have a situation. Even without any inside knowledge, the best guess anyone else out there would have had was the most logical outcome here in trying to figure out who will be the top deputy to James Gorman would have been these two men in Ted Pick from the investment bank and Andy Saperstein from the wealth management side. So three, he wants three years. He's told the board another three years as the CEO. Many people reflecting on what happened with Citigroup in the last couple of years where Mr. Corbett said something similar. Then all of a sudden, Jane Fraser just started to move really quickly. Was the city situation unique or do you expect, as some people expected to see something similar here? Citigroup and Morgan Stanley, two very different places right now. In fact, Morgan Stanley's market cap is even higher than Citigroup right now. Imagine saying that a few years ago. Yep. That, that would That's not stunning. have been considerable. Even now, Citigroup has twice the assets of Morgan Stanley. And Citigroup has been going through a number of challenges on the regulatory front and elsewhere. Morgan Stanley is a different story. They are in a good position. They are in what James Gorman calls a position of strength. And the, when the going is this good, it's hard to imagine you would want to leave. And that's why it makes sense when James Gorman is talking to senior management and the board and saying he wants to hang around for at least three more years. Sri, if you buy the argument that banks are reshuffling senior management ahead of the bank hearings in Washington, D.C. next week. What is the message being sent by the personnel choices, by the moves being made? Yeah, I have to take the contrarian side here, Lisa. I'm not sure the Morgan Stanley move necessarily signals much to D.C. However, the pandemic could very well have played a role. It is our understanding that James Gorman has been working on this succession plan, at least for a good part of the last year. He does this New Year's resolution every year where at the start of the year, he puts out a list of things he wants to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And this year, it very much was on the list to make sure there is a smooth transition of power. And uh, that's important for him. Sri, it's sort of old school to me when I was through the biographies of these guys. Edward Pick is a guy who's seen it all. He went over to the equity capital market side, and then he entered the Death Star, the fixed income shop, which at Morgan Stanley was an absolute train wreck uh, for years. Is he advantaged here because he has 
equity capital markets and bond capital markets experience. He certainly does bring big credentials with him. When you say he was started off on the equity capital market side, he helped with the IP of none other than Google. So he's had some big ticket names that he helped take public. Then he took over the equities business. And in the aftermath of the financial crisis, that was a big challenge to make sure that they could lift Morgan Stanley's equities business. And now yeah. it is the number one player on Wall Street. And then he helped a fixed income business that was flagging. So he's clearly built up the credentials. He's notched up the wins. So he's, his star is certainly very much on the rise. Sri, tremendous reporting as always. And good to catch up with you, sir. Bloomberg's Sri Natarajan. Breaking down the news coming out of Morgan Stanley. Let's bring in Russ Kostrick, shall we? BlackRock Global Allocation Fund Portfolio Manager. Russ, are we talking about talking about it? And should we be talking about it this morning? How significant is it? We're going to be talking about it one way or the other. Uh, look, I, I think this is important. The Fed is likely to start to shift their, their policy stance in the coming months. It's not unrealistic to think you begin tapering in, in, in Q4. Having said all that, you know, despite all the ink being spilled, you know, a couple of points, Long-term yields have actually remained remarkably contained. We've never taken out the high mm -hmm. from back in February and March. Bond market volatility is down significantly from where it was, again, back in February and March, despite the biggest inflation print in 40 years. So this is a big deal, but, you know, the wheels are not coming off the, the vehicle right. yet. And I think that's important to realize we still have a 165 10-year. Bond market volatility right now is still modest. So as of today... That helps explain why stocks are only down 3 4% exactly. from their high. I mean, the correction has been a non-correction. Russ, can you buy the big techs here? Have they been unloved for a long enough time where they're actually a relative value of relatively unloved? I think there are some opportunities in the big tech. You know, just to be clear, we're talking about, I think it is the mega cap, high quality tech. It's not necessarily the more speculative names, uh, the ones where earnings are, you know, five or 10 years out. We've actually been trimming those from the portfolio. But yes, if you're talking about high quality tech, it may underperform over the next one to two quarters if we get these gaudy GDP numbers and the cyclical trade continues two, three years out. I think you want to own them. You want them in your portfolio. You know, Alice, we talk about portfolio construction, Russ. There is a question of whether treasuries can provide truly a hedge for equities no. uh, at this point, especially given the negative correlation that's gotten it one, by one measure uh, to the most since the 2000s. What's your sense right now, early 2000s, I should say, uh, what's your sense of how hedge-worthy treasuries really are? Uh, right now, not much. Uh, you know, the, the reality is things have changed. And if I look at stock bond correlations, everyone knows they're ticking up. What's been less discussed is the fact that equity market volatility has remained elevated compared to bond market volatility. That wasn't a few couple months ago, but the reason that's important, the reason it's affecting the efficacy of the hedge is that tells you how convex a hedge it is. You know, what you're seeing is even in these days when the market is down a couple percent the way it was last week, either bonds are flat or they're up a little bit. They're not giving you that big movement they made them such an efficient hedge the way they were a couple of years ago. And that's a big change. You know, we don't talk about that a lot. We talk about Bitcoin. We talk about the Fed. If you're building a portfolio, the, the degradation and efficacy of bonds as your primary hedge is a big deal. Just to be clear here, Russ, you were the first person to mention Bitcoin on this program so far. This morning. <laughs> Ten minutes in. Sure just to be right. clear about that. <laughs> Russ, just finally and quickly, are you still nursing that cash position? Do you still sit on that going deeper into summer? 
We do have the cash position. Again, it's, it's the flip side of that being very underweight duration. Everyone's got a volatility they look to manage their portfolio to. In the absence of duration, you need other hedges. Part of it is cash. There are other things as well. There's vol as an asset class. Uh, there's FX pairs. But in a world where you're not getting that convexity from duration as a hedge, you're going to run with more cash. Russ, thank you. Our best to the team. Russ Kostrick there of BlackRock. Thank you. Right now in London, Roger Boodle joins us. He's with Capital Economics, our chairman. Uh, very important work in the Telegraph as well. Roger, I really have to ask about the churn that we're seeing right now in this great economy. Uh, the Philip Lane comment that John Farrell just had is so important. Uh, you're Ambrose Evans Pritchard of the Telegraph writing up inflation worries. Do you have inflation worries? Yes, I do, actually, um, and for the first time for quite a long time. Now, I, saying that I've got inflation worries, and I don't think it's going back to the inflation of the 1970s, but it concerns me that a lot of people in the markets and central banks and governments are becoming, I think, a bit complacent about this. Now, at the moment, of course, we're seeing you know, particular prices going up, and as some of your uh, people have been saying this morning, those effects are going to fade out, frankly. But I think the bigger issue is the stance of policy. All this money sloshing around, these incredibly low interest rates, I think we risk an inflation surge. Roger, is there a place around the world where you think that complacency is more concentrated, a region, a country, a central bank? Well, I think the dangers, put this with the dangers greatest in the States, because uh, the economy was not that hard hit, I was hard hit uh, by the pandemic, but not as hard hit as countries in the Eurozone or the UK. And you've had this massive, absolutely massive fiscal stimulus uh, and the money supply has grown substantially and you're already at 4.2 on the latest figure for the CPI. I, I think you'll see inflation readily at 5% and I don't think it's going to subside that easily. At the other end of the spectrum, I think the Eurozone is, is not facing that much of an inflationary danger. Of course, there'll be the spikes as a result of our commodity prices and energy prices and so on. But I don't think you're going to see anything like 5% in the Eurozone. And the UK is, I think, just about in between those two cases. Do you think there's some financial stability risk here along with that? Yes, I do. Uh, the big question is what central banks do. And if they don't do anything very much for some considerable time, then I think the risk is that they're going to be bounced into jumping interest rates. And then that has a very substantial uh, stability risk. I think the appropriate thing, once we're clear that the economy really is pretty strong and the inflation figures are picking up, uh, I think central banks should start to edge up interest rates pretty soon. Roger, what's going to be the impetus behind higher wages in the United States, which a lot of people who come on this show say is sort of a predetermining factor to longer-lasting inflation, as you're predicting? Mm. Well, it depends how strong the economy is. Uh, and all the signs are that the economy is going to be very strong. And that increases the bargaining power of labor. Now, it's not going to appear necessarily immediately, but it, it does happen when the economy is very strong. There's a shortage of, of, of people. Wages are bid up. But you're right to say that uh, you can't have continuing inflation going mad for a long time unless wages pick up. But I think they will. And after all, wage earners will have to pay higher prices in the shops. And that will affect 
their living wage and they'll want to get some sort of compensation for that. This is how inflation starts. And by the way, in, in the past, you know, uh, when inflation's got a bit out of control, it's always begun with people saying, oh, these are special factors, don't worry, it'll fade out. And with the central bank saying, oh, no, we're taking a relaxed approach. And then, of course, a bit later down the line, they find out that it doesn't fade out. Roger, I'm sitting here trying to uh, make these two views coherent, this idea that we could get inflation that rises to 5% and stays there for a while, and the idea of mm. a financial stability risk that torpedoes markets and causes uh, perhaps a return to pressures mm. on the economy. I mean, can you square the trajectory of the inflationary push and perhaps the market crash that subsequently results? Mm. Yes, I don't think it's the inflation itself that actually poses the risk to markets. Obviously, it's a risk to bond markets, um, these incredibly low yields. Um, but as far as equities are concerned, I don't think it's inflation itself. Obviously, equities are then sensitive to whatever happens in bond markets. No, the risk is from policy. Now, of course, if the policymakers decided they're prepared to tolerate 5% inflation for a bit, then fair enough. That doesn't materialize. But I would presume that at some point or other, 5% would be seen to be too high. Now, the Fed has altered its target. It's prepared to tolerate inflation, well, hasn't said explicitly, but, you know, 3%, perhaps 4% for a while, for a few years. But if this gets bedded in, then I think it has to act. And then if it acts by raising interest rates by anything other than a, a tiny amount, you've got to wonder in the financial conditions in which we've been living with very high asset valuations, uh, huge amounts of debt, you've got to wonder what the fallout from that will be. And I think that will be quite ugly. Roger Boodle, very quickly here, have we forgotten the joy of nominal GDP? I mean, you and I are fossil enough to remember the bright lights of nominal GDP really helping corporations, the corporate spirit, the business spirit, if you will. Have we forgotten the little bit of inflation could be a good thing? Well, I haven't forgotten about that. Um, the trouble with uh, a little bit of inflation is a bit like being a little bit pregnant. Uh, things tend not to stay that, that way. <laughs> Uh, well, I would I believe they uh, uh, tend not to stay that way. Uh, now, in some conditions, in the 50s and 60s, we had inflation 2, 3, 4%. It didn't get out of control, at least not for a long while, but then it did get out of control. I think you're right in the sense that we obviously don't want an economy that's flat on its back with zero inflation, let alone deflation. And if we've got 2%, that's perfect. It's probably good, better than having 1% or zero, maybe even 3 for a few years is perfectly okay. But once you get to these higher levels, then I think you do begin to get difficulties emerging. Uh, and so far, of course, central banks have not wanted to accept something like 5%. Maybe they will. Not the conversation I expected between the two of you to round this up, but we'll leave it there. Roger, thank you. Roger Boodle there. We're getting tons of economics chairman and founder. I bet you are, but it's not the good kind either. We talked to senators, we talked to congressmen and women, sometimes manufactured. Steve Daines of Montana is the real deal. He is original Montana, growing up in Bozeman, chemical engineer from Montana State University, uh, weaned there within Republican politics, and the senator yeah. joins us this morning. Senator Daines, as Montana's government yeah. site says, Montana works. What are you going to do with a 3.80% unemployment rate? Well, I'll tell you, a, a big shout out to our new governor of Montana, Greg Gianforte, who has been a friend of mine for 20 years. We were in business together in the cloud computing business for 12 years. Greg understands how you make economies work, how you create jobs. And Montana was the very first state 
that uh, eliminated that $300 a week supplemental federal unemployment insurance benefit. Because when you take a look at the state benefit plus the federal benefit, it was about 17 bucks an hour to stay home. This isn't about folks being lazy. This is about logic. You just look at the what you could make going to work versus staying home, and you could make more by staying home. Greg stepped out a little over two weeks ago and said no more of that. 20 states now have followed Montana's lead. What we have right now in this country is primarily a, a labor crisis, not a job crisis, as evidenced by the 8.1 million jobs available right now. You know, you go down to the Western Cafe in Bozeman, Senator, and the, that's where you're going to actually learn what's going on. What is the yeah. anecdotal evidence you or the governor see right now yeah. in Montana after this decision was made? I mean, it clicks in in late June, I believe June 27, but what have you observed with this policy action? Well, you're talking about the Western Cafe. I'm getting homesick. Uh, that's, that's inside baseball there. But if you go to the Western Cafe or go up and down the main streets across Montana, you're going to hear a couple of things. First, help wanted signs everywhere, now hiring everywhere. My wife and I were in my pickup driving by a small business recently in Montana, and there were balloons all around this business. I thought, what's going on? It looked like a car lot or something. There was a tent set up with people inside. They were doing live radio hits. It was a hiring promotion. They were trying to find people to work. But here's one of the anecdotes we've already heard in Montana. We've had a business there in Helena that was seeing one to two applicants every few weeks prior to the governor's action to suspend these federal additional benefits. After that happened, they saw 60 applications come in within the first 72 hours. So it's early, it's anecdotal, but we're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, clearly, I think we're going in the right direction here of creating incentives to get back to work. Senator, you clearly believe this is the right policy for the state of Montana. Do you think that applies to the rest of the country? Well, governors will make that decision. But I think generally, anytime you are paying people more to stay home than to go to work, uh, that's a problem. And I think it does depend certainly on whether it's an urban versus rural kind of situation as well. So with, within the states, there may be differing uh, kinds of incentive issues going on. But again, I think I come back to common sense. Uh, when you have these very generous benefits that were needed for a time, when we hit that crisis last year, uh, it was the right thing to do. But you can't keep paying people more to stay home than to go to work. Clearly, people find this an intuitive argument. What do you make of the argument that perhaps because children haven't been able to go back to school in many places still, that that's held back participation in this labor force? Yeah, no, I think that that's a fair point, and I, and I think it's important that there's just not one thing we need to do here to continue to get folks back on the job. I think the childcare issue is a very real issue. That's why it's so important we get the schools opened up and kids back in the classroom. Parents are upset. They want their kids back in the classroom. They learn better in the classroom, and, you know, it allows mom and dad to get back uh, on the job if they need to do that. Senator, when I think of Montana, I think of the CCC back in the 1930s, which helped shape Yellowstone National Park, one of the key national places uh, that, are, that really represent America's natural history. I'm wondering from your perspective, whether you're becoming more uh, open to the idea of something akin to that, some sort of work program or some sort of infrastructure spending that goes beyond just fixing certain uh, bridges and tunnels at this point, given where we are in the economic cycle. Yeah, well, I, uh, I've chaired the National Park Subcommittee uh, for the last couple of Congresses, so I'm a big fan of our national parks. Uh, we've spent a lot of time as a family in the wilderness areas in our national parks, as people who love the outdoors, as so many Montanans do. 
But I, I think fundamentally, first of all, remember we passed the Great America Outdoors Act under President Trump and the very strong bipartisan vote, which really was targeting infrastructure for our national parks as well as funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So we, we've already, I think, made a down payment on infrastructure for national parks, badly needed uh, to repair some of the, uh, the, 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 really the fraying edges of our national parks. But I think stepping back on the infrastructure question, I think we need to come back just to find what infrastructure is. It's roads, it's highways, uh, bridges, waterways, uh, broadband, uh, airports, uh, wastewater systems. And, and I think there's room for a bipartisan compromise if we really define infrastructure as kind of the man or woman on the street would say it is, not some of these social programs, free community college, free daycare, that the Biden administration is saying that's part of infrastructure. What size bill would you like to see with that bipartisan plan? We've heard a headline number of about $800 billion. Yeah, I, I think there's a range somewhere probably uh, in the 500 to $800 billion uh, range. That's still a huge amount of money. I think we've been desensitized as we've been talking you know, these trillion-dollar numbers now over the last year and a half. Uh, remember, th these are ma it's massive amounts of spending. And I think we all uh, have some concerns about what inflationary impacts that might have on our economy uh, to our long-term detriment. So I think we want to be measured. Uh, but we also want to address the issue that infrastructure is an investment in America. I think I view that more as investing than spending. We'll get a return on that investment. Senator Daines, you've been a supporter of President Trump and much of his policy as well. You need to look forward to 2022 and 2024. I want you to find common ground with a retiring senator from Ohio, Rob Portman. Is there a place for a diverse future Republican Party or is it going to be the party of Trump? No, there's absolutely a diverse party. Rob Portman's a very good friend of mine. You know, I was a, a Procter & Gamble guy for 13 years, of course, headquartered in Cincinnati. And Rob used to work in ranches during the summer in Montana as a kid growing up. And so Rob and I uh, go back a long ways. I have the utmost respect for Rob Portman. But no, there, 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 there's room here for a, a Big Ten. I mean, at the end of the day, politics is about addition, not subtraction. And we are stronger when we have those diverse views within the Republican so Party. So what should be this? I don't mean to interrupt, Senator, but I think this is absolutely critical. What would you like to see from the former president to bring a more diverse Republican Party together versus his 909-page statement to two attorneys in New York yesterday? What does President Trump need to do now? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, if you think about what happened over the course of the last several years, uh, the president brought uh, so many you know, blue-collar workers into the Republican Party. They weren't necessarily uh, political or partisan. They really don't care if there's an R or D behind their name. They wanted to see this America first, protecting manufacturing jobs, bringing jobs back to, our, to the United States. And, and in so many ways, he expanded the party as well as with, uh, with Cuban Americans, with Hispanics. Uh, you actually saw very strong numbers in this last line. And that's part of the untold stories, the actually inroads with minorities uh, that was made uh, by Republicans and, and, and led by President Trump. Now, I understand that some folks don't like some of the mean tweets and other things, but take a look at what's going on right now in our economy with these policies, with what's going on. He cancels, Biden cancels the Keystone Pipeline. Well, uh, well uh, at the same time, he's greenlighting the Nord Stream 2 Pipeline and help Russia. I mean, you can't make this up. And so these inconsistencies are going to cause a real problem for many voters who are they going to have some remorse or what they decide to vote for President Biden in 2020. Well, we'll see in the midterms in 22. Senator, let's end this conversation by teeing up our next conversation, and hopefully we can do that in a couple of weeks' time. Bringing Europe along for the ride for the foreign policy goals of this administration and this country has proved difficult over the years on both China and Russia with Nord Stream 2, as you mentioned. Senator, your priorities, how they set up with that, with that in respect, with regards to that? 
Yeah, well, of course, the Europeans are incredibly important allies, and both in terms of economic allies as well as from a national defense and with NATO and so forth. But think about what's going on right now. We're, we're importing, the United States is importing more oil from Russia as we speak here today than Saudi Arabia. The Keystone Pipeline oil would more than replace the Russian oil that we're importing. And why President Biden would kill that project, that pipeline, while at the same time, we've heard now, green lighting the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, lifting those sanctions to create greater dependencies for Germany and Europe on Russian natural gas. I'll tell you who's cheering right now, it's the Kremlin. And that's a real problem as it relates to not just short-term, but long-term geopolitical implications. Senator, I think we'd all love to get you back soon. So let's find some time in the diary over the next couple of weeks and we'll pick up on this conversation, sir. The senator from Montana, Senator Steve Daines there. Right now, what we're going to do is look at the equity markets, and we do this through the prism of institutional equity selection. Ann Maletti is iconic at Wells Fargo out in Milwaukee, where it was strong years ago. She owned the high ground of value. Ann Maletti, we could have a three-hour conversation here on the efficacy of value. The basic idea is value sits for X number of years, and then it's go, go, go. Can value go moving forward? Well, look, Tom, it's had a great run, and certainly it's closed the gap with growth, outperforming growth in such a wide, um, by such such a wide margin in Q1 and, and past that, as you know. The challenge really here is the million-dollar question that the three of you have been talking about so much this morning. Do we really have inflation ahead of us, or is it something more like, you know, we're in this economy that was shut off with a light switch and is now being turned on with a dimmer switch. And at the end of the year, we actually start to see this booming economy really look more normalized and much slower. And therefore, some of the inflation fears that investors have today really start to kind of moderate. And you then focus on the companies that can outgrow and so while value is still attractive to our investment teams, there are some stocks in the growth space that, that investors would kind of call the growth space that are also starting to look attractive to us too, given some of the sell-off and given the fact that those stocks have started to beat, you know, continue to beat earnings estimates and the multiples have compressed. So there's a lot out there, um, a lot of moving pieces but this, you know, the recent volatility that we've seen and the, the recent run in the cyclical stocks in particular um, has, has made it more interesting and certainly more of a stock picker's market. And just quickly, I mentioned the surprise indices that come from both City and here at Bloomberg as well for the U.S. The fact that they've rolled over, that we're consistently missing expectations, what signal does an equity investor take from a picture like that? You know, it, it's, it's interesting because you see on one hand a lot of expectations being beat, and then there's some economic data that has lagged a little bit more. So, you know, you've talked about what the Fed is probably paying attention to, wage growth, employment, um, you know, the, the rent prices, et cetera. And those things haven't, haven't necessarily, you know, surprised on the upside. And so um, those are the main focus points, I think, for the Fed when they look at long-term inflation. And um, that's, a, that's kind of what they're focused on. Investors, however, see and hear from companies all of the 
pressures they're seeing with commodity costs, with, all, with transportation costs, all of these things that longer term will compress margins if they don't get solved. And I think they worry that that spillover effect, if the economy stays as strong as it is, fueled by all of the stimulus that was put behind it, you get inflation in those scenarios. Well, many, and and this, this is one reason why a number of investors have come on the show and they've said they're looking for companies that have pricing power that can raise their prices uh, on consumers effectively without denting their sales. That's something that you reiterated in recent research. How much has that already been priced in, though, that these companies uh, do have that power and thus are attracting that much more investor attention? Yeah, it's a good point, Lisa. You know, certainly our, our investment teams have been very, very focused on pricing power over the last quarter. You know, to Tom's point earlier, the cyclicals and the value space, as you go into a recovery phase of the market, that's the place you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck early on. But the longer the cycle continues, the more careful you have to be about where the staying power is for that pricing power. And so our teams are now, you know, rather than it be an industry or a big, you know, part of the market that's gonna get that pricing power, it's really more company by company who can sustain it. And that's what they're really paying great attention to. And thank you. Great to get you on the show and get your input on the market. And Melissa there of Wells Fargo. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.